Well, a man came home from work one day and he found his three children outside and they were still in their pajamas. They were playing in the mud with empty food boxes and wrappers strewn all over the place, all over the front yard. And the door of his wife's car was wide open, as was the front door to the house, and there was no sign of the dog. Proceeding into the entry, he found an even bigger mess. A lamp had been knocked over, and the throw rug was wadded up against one wall, and in front of the TV was loudly uh, blaring a cartoon channel, and the family room was, room was uh, strewn around with uh, various toys and items of clothing. In the kitchen, dishes filled the sink, breakfast food was spilled on the counter, the fridge door was wide open, dog food was spilled on the floor, a broken glass lay underneath the table, and a small pile of sand was spread by the back door. He quickly headed upstairs, and when he got upstairs, he was stepping over toys and more piles of clothes, and he was looking for his wife. He was worried she might be ill or that something serious had happened to her. He was met with a small trickle of water that was making its way out of the bathroom door. And as he peered inside, he found uh, wet towels and scummy soap and more toys strewn all over the floor. Miles of toilet paper lay in a heap and toothpaste had been smeared over the mirror and the walls. As he rushed to the bedroom, he found his wife still curled up in the bed in her pajamas reading a novel. She looked up at him and she smiled and asked how his day went. He looked at her bewildered and he asked, what happened here today? She again smiled and answered, you know, every day when you come home from work and you ask me what in the world I do all day, he said, yes. She answered, well, today I didn't do it. (laughs) I read that this week. I've heard that before. And I thought to myself, well, that pretty much uh, sums up Mother's Day. And why we are thankful for you. Is there any mother here that can say amen to that? Can I get a testimony of that? (laughs) Well, as we come to chapter 7 here in the book of Nehemiah, in the memoirs of Nehemiah, the walls have been rebuilt, the gates are in place, and in just 52 days, Nehemiah and his workers had completed what appeared to be at first a very much impossible task. And as great as walls might be, as nice as cities are, walls are not needed unless there are people. I hope you understand that. There is no city without people. Cities are people. And so today we look at chapter 7, and I want to spend our time talking about why people matter. Yes, obviously moms matter, but I would say to you that on a much larger scale, it's not just moms that matter. People matter because people matter to God. A city is so much more than just walls and gates and houses. And up until now, the people really have existed for the walls. And now things are going to change. The walls will exist for the people. It's now time to organize the people so that they can accomplish the great things, really, which God has set forth for them to accomplish. It's important for you to remember that in this city, one day, remember the Messiah will walk on these very streets. He will teach in that temple that they are going to rebuild. And then just outside those city walls, that same Messiah will actually die. The city of Jerusalem is very important when we look out ahead from the book of Nehemiah moving forward. And so today I have the incredible privilege on this Mother's Day 2012 to preach to you the phone book of the city of Jerusalem. 
What a great task that is. 73 verses. Names, most of which I can't pronounce, and don't judge me because neither can you. But we're going to dig into this chapter 73 verses long. And I, 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 I say to you, we're going to get out of here on time this morning. So are you ready? Now let's dig into Nehemiah chapter 7. Verse 1 says, Now when the wall was rebuilt, and I'd set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed. Having finished the walls, Nehemiah took steps to ensure that the city would remain secure by appointing guards. And so that the temple worship could flourish Uh, The gatekeepers usually guarded the temple entrance, but Nehemiah wanted them to do more than that. He posted them at the city gates because he felt there was imminent danger. Remember, we've been saying for weeks in our study that uh, those outside of the city walls were not excited at all about the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt. Verse 2 says, Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, and he feared God more than many. Nehemiah chose two men to serve in two very important uh, capacities. Uh, His brother Hananiah and uh, this other man named Hananiah. Uh, They were were basically in roles that were similar, Hananiah, to our mayor. And Hananiah, in our culture, we might refer to him as the chief of police. Now, notice there in the text that there are two reasons why he's chosen these individuals. And I would submit to all of you that want to be leaders, that want to see God do something great in and through your life, to remember these two character traits. Our world doesn't value them, and yet God puts a very high value upon these things. Our world says you can be a great leader if you're a good communicator, if you, if you can use persuasive speech, if you're a certain height, if you have a, a certain look about you. And yet God, the God of the Bible, has never been impressed with those things that we're impressed with. In fact, Scripture makes it very clear that God doesn't look on outward appearance, but he looks where? He looks directly to our hearts. And so there are two things about these men that Nehemiah noticed. Number one, that they were faithful. If you ever want God to use you in leadership, you better be faithful. And number two, not only were they faithful, but they feared God more than they feared a group of people. He ever had to follow a leader who feared people more than he wanted to do what was right? I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I believe that one of the reasons why we are where we are, not only in our country, but around the world in leadership, is because men fear people more than they fear God. If you want to be used by God in leadership, you have to be faithful. And number two, you have to fear God more than you fear a group of people. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And I love this, that Nehemiah gave very clear instruction to the new mayor and the chief of police. Look at verse 3. He said to them, Don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, But the people in it were few and the houses were not built. To minimize the threat of these invaders that Nehemiah thought would ultimately come, he ordered the gates of Jerusalem to be open only during the busiest hours of the day. You see, people had not been living in Jerusalem, and it's quite obvious why they'd not been living in Jerusalem, because for them to live in Jerusalem, an unwalled city was a very dangerous thing. 
And so it was pretty much like a ghost town. You could probably picture it like New Orleans after the, uh, uh, after the hurricane in 2005, how it basically became a ghost town because there was no infrastructure there. Nehemiah anticipated things might be changing. And so in verse 5, if people were going to come back, Nehemiah wanted to know who those people were. And verse 5 says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up, up first, in which I found the following record. And then verses 6 down through about verse 69, he gives us a record of those particular people. Now, this is a repetition. If you were to look back at Ezra chapter 2, you'll see this same list. It's basically a repetition. It's almost identical to that particular list found in the book of Ezra. Why did Nehemiah repeat this list? Apparently, he wanted to encourage the Jews to move back into Jerusalem. You can almost picture as if Nehemiah has kind of put out this, this little PR for the city. Jerusalem is back. You've seen that on our TV, right? With regards to New Orleans. Hey, we're back, you know. Come down, party for Mardi Gras. Things are back. It's just like the sinful city it was before. We're back. Only different, Nehemiah wanted to make sure that people knew, hey, the walls have been rebuilt. Things are happening once again in this city. We want you to come back. And there was also a need to validate the claims to property, uh, to the property rights and similar matters as well. And so Nehemiah was going to use this genealogy, he was going to use a, a copy of these records as the basis for his plan moving forward. Now, I'm not going to read uh, all the way down through verse 69. I humored you with that several weeks ago when we were in uh, the third chapter. And I'm not going to do exactly that today, but I am going to start out here uh, reading in verse 6. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, not our Nehemiah, different Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bana, the number of men and the people of Israel. And then it goes through this list down through verse 38. This is pretty incredible. Starts out with the sons of Parash, 2,172. I want to say to you without going through the whole list here, and, and by the way, you read as I'm talking here. This is a pretty incredible thing. I mentioned to you in chapter 3 of Nehemiah that there are all kinds of commentaries that totally ignore that particular chapter as if nothing important is being said in that chapter. There is a reason why God put these names down here. These were faithful people. These were people that stepped out in faith to do something big, to do something incredible. And I think it's an interesting thing that here are the sons of Parash. We don't know anything else about Parash. When you get to heaven one day, you can ask, you know, hey, where's Parash? And you can go, I mean, he, he was obviously a, a man who had some kind of influence because 2,172 people in his line, in his family line, made their way back to Jerusalem. That's a pretty incredible thing. I want to say to you at the outset here this morning, before we get to the end of our time together this morning, that the things that you do right now matter. The things that you do matter. And by the way, I beat up on men a lot around here. I think we need to be beat up on. I try to encourage you once in a while too. But I'm not just saying that about men. Women, it's true of you too. 
Moms, do you realize that right now you're making decisions, you're making choices as moms that will affect not only your life, but it affects the lives of those children that are living in your home right now, of their children and of their children and of their children? Those decisions that you and I make today have ramifications, they have consequences for generations and generations to come. If you don't believe that, you sit in my position as a pastor for one week, and I guarantee you, after one week, you'll come to the conclusion that what you do matters. The decisions that you're making right now do have ramifications, not just for your life, not just for your immediate family, but they have consequences many times for generations to come. I would submit to you that there are some of you that are sitting here this morning and your life right now, some of the things that are going on in your life, some of the things that you struggle with are the result of the influence of previous generations. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that that's an excuse for you to behave inappropriately. It's about time in our culture for some of us to stand up and say, I won't make excuses for the way my life is right now. I will learn to understand, read, and study the Word of God, and I'll behave myself in a way that is consistent with biblical principles, thereby stopping that pattern in my family. I'm so thankful that there are some of you that are here this morning, and I know that's your testimony. I know that's your testimony. One day you said, hey, this is going to stop with my generation. I'm going to be a different kind of a dad than my dad was. I'm going to be a different kind of a husband than what I saw modeled in my home. And some of you ladies have done the same thing. And as a result of honoring God in your life that way, you have turned the corner. And your decisions will affect generations to come over and over and over and over again. And some of you will never know just how important those decisions are until one day you're in heaven. And somebody comes up who shares your name and says, I'm your great, 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 great grandson. And I just want you to know that after you died, we continue to live the life. Oh, I pray that God will give us some of those people here at Northwest Community Church. And so these are not just names. When you see 2,172 sons and 372 and 652 and 2,818, what a busy guy, 1,254 and so on and so on and so on. These are generations of people. The next section down in verse 39 List the temple personnel. Uh, These would be equivalent today. These are the priests. They would be equivalent today to our pastors in our local church. The priests, the sons of Jedidiah, the house of Jeshua, 973. All total, there were about 4,000 priests that were returning, that were going back to Jerusalem. Verse 43, we're introduced to the Levites. The Levites were similar in our particular uh, leadership structure here at Northwest. They might be similar to our deacons. They assisted the priest. And then in verse 44, we're introduced to the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148 of them. Now, next week, we're going to get into chapter 8, and so I don't want to steal my thunder from chapter 8. But anyway, I don't have enough time to do this. And we're going we're to focus pretty heavily next week on worship. But the people in chapter 8, they're going to have a worship service that is unlike anything most of us have ever experienced. The text here, though, says that they were blessed to have 148 singers. And the singers play a very important part, by the way, in the life of the city. There are at least 18 different references in the book of Nehemiah 
to the singers. Now, you have to remember, there hasn't been much singing up until this point during their time of exile, when the people were out of fellowship with God. In fact, if you have some time this week, you can go back to uh, Psalm 137 and you can read there about the lamenting of how horrible things were and how much they missed the holy city of Jerusalem. And there wasn't much singing going on. There was a lot of weeping, a lot of, uh, a lot of crying, but there wasn't a lot of singing. But what we're going to see next week is, wow, <laughs> things change. Here's an incredible thing for you to remember, that when we have a right relationship with Jesus... True celebration should break out. It should happen. In fact, if you find yourself Sunday after Sunday after Sunday with this kind of music being, being led up here and you find yourself just kind of sitting there going, man, life is, oh, you know, kind of like Psalm 137 for the Jews. Oh, this is horrible. Oh, woe is me. There's probably something wrong with you if you find that to be true. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. When we are properly aligned with God, there ought to be true celebration that breaks out. I'm not saying that's true all the time. I'll confess to you that there are some Sundays I'm standing down here and I'm not, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> that's just the bottom line. I'm not. Most of the time it's because I'm not in fellowship with God. I'm focused on those things that don't really matter. They don't really count. count. Satan has allowed me to, to get myself off of, off, of the, off of the way that I'm supposed to be going, and I find myself discouraged. But if you find yourself unlike that on a regular basis, something's probably wrong. Let me take just a moment to talk about our worship here at Northwest. Our Asaph is Bill King. In fact, from now on, you can just call him Asaph, Okay. He is, he is the guy that leads our musicians. He's the guy who leads those that so capably and faithfully lead us in worship each week. Just stop for a moment and imagine what it would be like not to have any music in our service next week. All you get is me. That'd be pretty incredible, wouldn't it? Yeah, some of you are excited about it, others of you not so much. Imagine what that would be like not to have that aspect of our service. I am very much thankful, tremendously thankful for those that serve us in that way week after week after week. I'm thankful for the preparation uh, that takes place. Did you know that every single thing that happens up here on this stage from the time that you walk through those doors, that we prayerfully consider every single aspect of the service? You understand that? Nothing that we will do here this morning has gone without thought. We have prepared for our corporate time of worship uh, this week. And so when we start at 10 a.m., when that clock strikes, strikes 10 a.m. and that band fires up and, and, and we start singing, there's a reason why we're singing that first song. Now, can I spank some of you just a little bit, really gently, okay, because it's Mother's Day. I'm not going to get out of bat and start beating you. I'm just going to kind of swatch you just real gently, all right? Some of you never understand just how important that first song is because you find it very difficult to get in here for that first song. Now, let me praise you in one way. One of the reasons why you do that is because, not because you're not here, you're out there, you're having a great time, man. You're interacting with people that you really love and you really care about. And by the way, I spin it that way in staff meeting all the time when these people talk about, oh, people aren't in here. I'm like, but hey, they're loving on each other out there, all right? So I defend you on a regular basis. But let me say this, that there is a reason why we sing that first song. And I want to challenge you this way. 
Most of you know, if you don't, you should know, I'm a huge Nebraska Cornhusker football fan. Not so much basketball, but definitely football. All right? And when I go to a football game, especially at the University of Nebraska, but it doesn't really matter where they are playing, I am there. As soon as those gates open, I want to be in the stadium. I just want to take it all in. And you go to the University of Nebraska, it's like a shrine. If I wasn't a Christ follower, oh man, you know, we all worship somebody, right? We choose to worship God, the God of the universe. Some people worship other things, but wow, what a shrine if you choose to worship that. And I get in there and I sit there just to be there where national championships have been won. Oh, it's just so awesome to be in that place. I don't come just for the kickoff. No way. I want to be there early. I want to get myself a piece of Valentino's pizza. If you've never had that, you ought to go to Nebraska just for that. I want to eat that pizza, and I want to take in that surrounding, and and I want to see on that jumbotron plays of days gone by, and I want to revel in the fact that I am a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. And in just a few moments, we're going to meet our opponent on the field. Some of you are going college football, come, right? Some of you are for the, others of you are going, I don't have a clue what you're saying. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, here's my point. If we can do that for something, if I can do that for something, really ultimately at the end of the day, as meaningless as a football game, how much more should we be prepared as we come into this place and we are going to encounter the God of the universe corporately and we are together going to express to him his worthship to us? Don't you think we should be prepared for that? I want to challenge you not to get here at 10 a.m. I want to challenge you to get here maybe about 9.30 and spend about 15 minutes talking to those people that you really love and care about. And by the way, that you can talk to again at 11.30. You can even go to lunch with them at 11.30. But that by about 9.45, 9.50, you're sitting here in in these chairs and you're anticipating we have come here corporately to worship the God of the universe. And this is going to be awesome. And I want to be prepared and I want to be ready for that event. Does that make sense to you? I trust that we will begin uh, to do that. We'll talk about it a little more uh, next week. Verse 45, the other temple personnel, the gatekeepers, are listed. There's 138 of them. And in verse 46, we're introduced to the temple servants. All the way down through verse 56. And in verses 57 to Uh, to 59, we're introduced to the temple servants that were actually Solomon's servants. Solomon's been off the scene for, uh, uh, for quite a while. David had organized temple servants, and there were obviously some that, uh, that Solomon had organized. They were known as Solomon's uh, servants. And they, what these temple servants did is they really served alongside of the Levites. The Levites were serving the priests. They were kind of relieving them of some work. You had the, the Levites here. And then these temple servants would do things for, uh, the, uh, uh, for the Levites. They would uh, do heavy routine tasks, such as cutting wood for the sacrifices, for the altars. They would go and they would draw water. These roles uh, are very similar to the ministry which so many of you perform on a weekly basis here at Northwest. And I want to say to you, it is such an incredible joy for me to watch so many of you serve and serve so effectively. I feel like so many times I get a front row seat uh, to see some of the things that are happening, some of the things that are going on. 
I get wind of things that, that, uh, that are happening, that are influencing and impacting the lives of people because you are serving, you're using your gifts to do that. Some of you set up and you tear down equipment. There were guys that were here this morning, uh, right when that trailer pulled up, they ripped everything off of that trailer and they set up everything that you see here, everything out in the, in the cafe area, the children's ministry area, and in just a little while from now, they'll break it all down again. Some of you bake cookies. And I love the fact that you bake cookies. Some of you make coffee. I really don't care if you make coffee because I don't like it, but I know some people do. You make coffee. You teach children. You work in student ministry events. You play with toddlers on the floor. You roll around little cars back there in our children's ministry to occupy them while their moms and their dads are in here. Some of you even go so far as to changing diapers. There's a special reward for you in heaven someday for that task that you're performing. Some of you drive trucks and tow trailers, you stuff bulletins, you greet our guests, you spray our weeds over at the office, you spread mulch over at our office, you plant bushes, you pray for those that are hurting, you visit those that are sick, you make meals for those that are in a time of need. Some of you mentor young people. Many of you around here, you make this place happen. It's not the priests necessarily. It's not the Levites necessarily. Sometimes we just think it's the professionals that are doing the work of the ministry. You, I recognize that this place would not be what it is. We would not be having the impact in the lives of people that we're having were it not for those of you that faithfully serve each week. Others of you serve in areas which I'll never know about and I'll never see. Nobody knows what you do. And let me remind you that while nobody else may know what you do, God knows exactly what you're doing. And he's keeping a record of it, by the way, and he knows who you're doing it for. If you're doing it for him and with the motive being for his glory, he knows that. The writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 6, verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. I want to challenge you to keep that up. They had a great group of people that were working there in Jerusalem. These were the people that were there to serve. Verse 61 says, These were they who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show their father's houses or their descendants whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deli, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642 of them, of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gilead, the Gileadite, and was named after them. These searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. Now, one group of people, including some of the priests, they actually could not prove their ancestry. And for these priests, it really meant that they could not continue their priestly duties. You know if you're familiar with the Mosaic Law that the Mosaic Law made it very clear that the only ones who could serve uh, as priests were those who were in the family line and the family of Aaron. They were the only ones that could minister there at the altar. And so for others, without proof of Jewish blood flowing through their veins, it meant that they not only could not serve as priests, but they actually could not own land in that holy city of Jerusalem. And so they would need to determine their ancestry. Now, uh, we're really pressed for time this morning, but uh, look at how they were going to determine their ancestry. I think some of you will find this interesting. The Urim and the Thummim, 
the Urim and the Thummim. Maybe some of you have heard that before. These were gemstones that were carried by the high priest of Israel on his ephod, on his priestly uh, garments. Now, it's unclear uh, really to historians whether the Urim and the Thummim were on, by, or actually uh, in the high priest ephod. No one knows the precise nature of the Urim and the Thummim or exactly how they were used. The, the Bible really doesn't give us enough information. But what we do know is that they were used by the, by the high priest in a sacred way of determining God's will in some situations. And really pretty fascinating and one of those things that you might want to study uh, further. Uh, some propose that God would cause the Urim and the Thummim to actually light up in varying patterns to reveal his decisions. Now, again, we don't know a whole lot about them. We know that obviously they were used. We don't know exactly how they were used, but how many of you would pay big bucks if that existed today? I mean, I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't our ministry take off if people found out in the town of Cary, that pastor over there, he's got a Urim and a Thummim. Now, not too many people would know what a Urim and a Thummim was, but when they figured out what a Urim and a Thummim was and that all I had to do was take these before God and he would light them up and he would do what needed to be done and then I could say, hey, this is what God's will is. Wouldn't I be a popular pastor in this town starting next week? That's how they were going to determine whether or not these people actually had Jewish blood flowing through their veins and thereby were entitled either to owning property there in that holy city or actually serving as temple priest. This brings up an interesting question. I want to pause for just a moment and ask you this question. Can, can you prove your citizenship is in heaven? You see, for these people not to be able to prove their citizenship really just meant that uh, they wouldn't be able to serve as a priest, which was a big deal. They wouldn't be able to own land in Jerusalem, which was a big deal. But one day, you're going to need to be able to prove that your citizenship is in heaven. Matthew chapter 7 says that there's going to be many in that day that are going to give a lot of credentials when they stand before God, a lot of credentials that really don't matter. And maybe that's some of you this morning. Maybe you're going to answer like they did in Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, but I, I did this and I did it in your name. You remember when Brian was talking about those temple servants and those people in the body at Northwest that served? I was one of those that was changing diapers back there. I mean, surely you know who I am. I read your word from cover to cover. I prayed. I did all of these wonderful things. And yet Matthew 7 says that God's going to say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. You weren't a true citizen. You didn't have my blood flowing through your veins. The proof of relationship with Jesus Christ, according to the book of Revelation, is that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do we get our names written in the Lamb's book of life? It is by trusting in Christ alone as our personal Savior. I'd submit to you this morning that if you're trusting in anything else, if you think a big check put in one of those offering towers in the back, if you think that somehow serving and doing a lot of good things is somehow going to merit you citizenship in heaven, you are sorely mistaken. It is only by trusting in Christ alone that our citizenship in that holy city is secure. Verse 66 says, The whole assembly together totaled 42,360, and that didn't include their male and their female servants, and they had 245 male and female singers as well that must have been servants. Verses 68 and 69 just talk about how important their animals were to them. I think it's interesting. They had 736 horses. 
Not 735, not 737. They had 736. They counted every one of them. Their mules, 245. You think, how important is a mule? Must be really important. Mules got to feel pretty special. They actually made it in this list. 435 camels and 6,720 donkeys. Not 6,721, not one less, not one more. 6,720. And so the total number of those who returned was just shy of 50,000 people. Look at verse 70. Verse 70 says, Some from among the heads of the father's households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priest garments. Verse 71, Some of the heads of the father's households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. 72, That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priestly garments. Here's one of the most disturbing words that you will find in all of the book of Nehemiah, certainly in chapter 7, and it is that word, some. Not all the people, you see, participated in the giving of the resources for the work of the ministry, just some. Notice that the leaders gave first, and that's the way that it should be. You need to understand that here at Northwest, I have no idea what any of you give. I have no idea. There are just a few people that know what you give here, and they are the ones that handle our finances. I have no idea what you give. But I will tell you this. When we have leaders that come onto our elder team, that come onto our deacon team, we care very much that those leaders have a, have a giving record here at Northwest. Don't you think that's only reasonable? Would you want people spending money and making decisions about how your resources are spent that you give to the ministry of Northwest if they weren't invested And all the way through Scripture, you see leaders leading in that way, leaders that are setting the pace, and that's what's happening here in the book of Nehemiah. We can't say that we love Jesus, but we don't give to his cause. But evidently, that's what some people were doing. Just some were participating. Do you know that altogether, just the gold that they would have given would have been worth about $20 million today? $20 million about 765, 775 pounds of gold is what they gave to uh, the work of the ministry. Now, I'm so glad that we've come to this particular text at a time when our budget's in the black. (laughs) So it's always much easier to talk about these things when the budget's in the black than when it's in the red. and People are going, well, I know what he's thinking. I know what he... It's a great thing to talk about today because at least for today, I don't know about next week, but I know that for today, We are in the black in our budget. And so I want to talk with you for just a moment. I want to make a few observations as it relates to this text. Let me tell you something that some of you may not realize. Do you know that stuff costs money? You recognize that? Stuff costs money. Buildings cost money, believe it or not, and I know this is so difficult to believe, but Wake County doesn't let us use this facility for free. Can you believe that? Really, I think that that is quite ironic because I think they ought to let us use it for free. Can I get a testimony? But they don't. It costs money. It costs a lot of money for us to be here and here this morning, even though it's not really that cool this morning. I'm realizing that as I'm sweating up here. It costs us money. It costs us money to have staff. It costs us money to have children's ministry. It costs us money to have student ministry. It costs us money to support pastors in Kenya and missionaries in Beirut and missionaries that are serving in China today. Those things cost money. 
And if you think about it, in the very way that we operate as a local church, the way we operate our finances, to those outside of the church, it must seem awfully crazy what we do. It has to. Imagine what it would be like, I heard a pastor say this week, imagine what it would be like for you to go to a car dealer tomorrow to look at a car, and you looked at the car, and you loved the car, and you said, well, how much does it cost? And he said, it's up to you. Whatever you think it's worth. There's a little tower over there by the door, and as you go out to your clunker car, just put in there whatever you think, come back, get the keys, and enjoy. Imagine how long that car dealer might stay in business. Imagine if you went to a restaurant, like some of you will, just a little while from now, and you got out that menu, and at the end you said to the waiter, the waitress, you said, hey, where's the check? And he goes, there is no check. You say, well, what does it cost? He goes, whatever you want to pay. In fact, why don't you just take a moment and around that little table, why don't you guys pray about what you'd like to give for the meal which you received today? And then whatever that is, you just lay it there on the table, and it was our privilege, it was our joy to serve you today. What would you think about that? Some of you are going, I really like this idea. Is there any way we can make this all over the country? This is just the way that we operate. But it's not. You wouldn't be in the restaurant business very long. You wouldn't be a car dealer very long if you did that. But that's the way we believe God would have us to operate as a church. If you're a guest here at Northwest Community Church this morning, you're our guest. We don't want you to feel obligated to give a penny. In fact, we don't even pass an offering plate here. Some think that that's a big mistake for us. I don't think it is. We didn't invite you here for your money. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't feel obligated to give either. We didn't invite you here to get your money. We invited you here to introduce you to the God of the universe who gave his son, who shed his innocent blood on a cross that you and I might have a relationship with him and by having a relationship with him be assured of our citizenship in heaven. Now, those of you that are here this morning and you're Christ followers and you call Northwest Community Church your home, we have a responsibility to give as we have been blessed. And we don't teach tithing here at Northwest. Tithing was taught in the Old Testament and maybe is a good place for you to start. In the Old Testament, they gave 10%, or at least some of you have bought into the idea that they gave 10%, when in actuality, if you remember a year or so ago, I I taught you that actually the tithe under the law was actually closer to 25%. So if you want to give under law, have at it. That'd be a great thing. Um, But we don't teach that uh, here at Northwest. We believe, and I taught this to you about a year ago, that the principles that are found in God's word in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 8 and 9, we believe that it provides the foundation there of how we give as Christ followers who are living in an age of grace after the cross. And so we believe that we give cheerfully, we give generously, we give sacrificially, and we give regularly. This means that a single mom that's here this morning or a senior citizen that's on a fixed income, uh, that means that you might give a whole lot less than somebody that's here this morning and they're a CEO of a big company. The point is that we give in proportion to what we have been given. For someone who makes $20,000 a year, for you to give $500 or $600 in a year, that would be an incredible sacrifice for you. On the other hand, for somebody here this morning and you enjoy an income of a quarter of a million dollars a year, for you to give $50,000 would mean maybe that you didn't even give to the point of sacrifice, that you just simply gave out of your excess. Do you see the point? The principles, though, remain the same. We want you to give cheerfully. We want you to give sacrificially. 
We want you to give regularly, and we want you to give generously. And I'm just crazy enough to believe, and our elders are just crazy enough to believe, that when we do things God's way, and we teach you that way, that the needs will be met here at Northwest. Not just our regular budget, but our needs around the globe, the commitments that we've made to pastors in Kenya who this morning are living out there in the middle of nowhere, but we've committed to help them financially. To people in our body that have needs, to people in our community that have needs, God will take care of all of that as we're obedient to give back to him a portion of what he's blessed us with. We see that going all the way back to the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 73 says, Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities, and when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. It's kind of like what a mom says, when all the kids are at home and they're snug in their beds. The city's back. And you can imagine how excited Nehemiah was. Well, as we close this morning, I want to tell you this. The important thing as we come to the end here is not that they simply counted people, but to grasp the concept and the understanding that people count. People matter. People matter to God, and because people matter to God, people should matter to us. You have to understand that when these people left Babylon, they did much more than put their names on a list. They put their very lives at risk and they put everything on the line to restore the Jewish nation, to restore this great city. They were people that believed that God could uh, use them to do something that was really great. They had the faith, they trusted that God would allow them to be involved in something that, that, that was seemingly impossible. I thought to myself this week as I was studying, I wonder if they realized 2,500 years ago that 2,500 years later, we'd be reading their names in the book of the Bible. Isn't that an awesome thing to think about? Think about who you are this morning, Brian Eisner. And to think 2,500 years ago that I would make a decision that as a result of that decision, my name would be listed in the Bible. Not in the Cary News, not in the News and Observer, but in the Bible. I wonder if they realized that the decisions that they were making at that time would change the very course of history. Most of us never stop to think about that, do we? We never stop to think that uh, the way we live our lives is really a big deal. It is. Because our lives matter. Here's what I want you to take away today. What you do with your life matters. And it will ultimately affect not just you, but also the generations that follow you. Understand that today. Moms understand that. Dads understand that. Middle school students, high school students understand that. Those decisions, those choices that you're making right now, what you're doing with your life, will ultimately have consequences, not just for you, not just for today, but for generations to come. May we be people that keep our compass focused on the one who created us, who gave us a life and a purpose to life, who gave us a reason to live, gave us a reason to stay on this planet until he comes back for us and he takes us to live in that place for all of eternity. I trust we'll be faithful to that cause until then. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for this principle that people matter. People didn't matter to you. 
we would be most desperate this morning. If you didn't care about people, if you didn't care about your creation, we would be headed toward an, an eternity apart from you. Yet it's all because of Jesus that we're alive. That we're alive. We have a reason to live. Because you chose us. You chose us to be in your family. You made a way for our sin debt to be paid, for us to be reconciled to the God of the universe. And God, for that we say thank, thank you. We're thankful that we matter, that we matter to you. And God, I pray that we will live our lives in such a way that we get this principle, that we understand that what we do with our life matters and it ultimately affects not just us, but generations to come. God, I pray one day that we will enjoy the blessings from doing things your way. That one day we will be greeted in heaven by those that have been affected in a positive way because of the way that we lived our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.